guys. We are, of course, continuing in our teaching series in 1 Corinthians, Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. We're going to be in this thing for a while. In the previous section, which was chapter 3, verses 18 to 23, Paul did the Corinthians and us a major favor by laying out the blueprint for ending divisions in the church. If the Corinthians and all believers maintain biblical views of our own person, of others, of our possessions, and of our possessor, who of course is Christ, the temptation uh, that comes against us to compare, compete, and divide with other brothers and sisters, it'll be much easier to defeat. In fact, I don't think there's anything for temptation to latch onto if that's the kind of views that we maintain. Uh, the Corinthians had really a, a wrong view of a great many things, and primarily in the first four chapters, we see how they had a very carnal wrong view of their leadership, of, of uh, just of the ministers who ministered to them. And um, they just were ignorant of what a Christian minister is. And this was a church that was about five years old, so you'd kind of think that they'd have it down by then, but they still didn't. And, and what they were essentially doing, and we've covered some of these things, I'm just kind of refreshing as we get into this next text, but one of the things they were doing is they were making the mistake of, of basically judging their Christian ministers by the same standards that were used to judge the local philosophers and others. They were essentially using the, the Greek uh, philosophical template for judging their Christian ministers. They were judging them according to the standards of the world, if you want to put it like that. And, and that was a, a huge mistake for them. And the, the way they looked at Christian ministers, no matter who it was, if, if the minister was stylistically pleasing, maybe skillful in his craft, then what the Corinthians would do was pretty much what Greek society would do with anyone who's a good speaker. They would basically rally around that person, exalt that particular person up to some kind of level where they shouldn't be, and then they would tout that they're following that particular person. And of course, this is where we saw this exact thing happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, where they said, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, etc., etc., and this, of course, led to the comparisons and then the competitions between these little groups. And in the end, it produced carnal unity, which is disunity, divisions. Now, in the next section, Paul educates the Corinthians and all believers by defining what a Christian minister is. He's going to lay out some guidelines or at least a definition for what a Christian minister actually is. That way they can change course and stop viewing their Christian ministers the same way they would view Greek philosophers or anyone else. So uh, I'd like for you guys, if you could, to please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. We're now in chapter 4, chugging right along. We're going to look at the first five verses, 1 through 5. This is going to be a four-point sermon, and I have entitled it very aptly because I like to keep things very simple Four Truths About Christian Ministers. And I think it's befitting that we pray once more for God's help during this time of teaching and listening and studying before we get, in, get to work here. Lord, thank you for what a, a wonderful morning. We have already, we've read the gospel in a sense with our, with our opening call to worship. We have, we have now sang the gospel, Lord. And now we need to preach the gospel. We need to hear the gospel. We need to obey 
the gospel, all for your glory and for our own good. And so we submit ourselves to you now. We ask, Lord, that uh, I, I like what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say. He would say, send a double unction of the Holy Spirit to the preacher. And I pray that for me right now. I don't even really know what that means, but I want it. And so, Lord, I pray that you fill me in such a sense that what, what I preach is just the truth. It's exactly the Word of God. It's exactly the commentary you've impressed upon my heart for this particular body, this congregation, RHC. I pray that you guide my mind, my heart, my tongue, and that you open this congregation's ears, eyes, hearts to the Word. Teach us about Christian ministers this morning. It's very important that we have a correct view. If not, we end up with a great many of the shenanigans we see in visible churches across the world today, and we really need to, to avoid that. We need to have a proper biblical view of what a Christian minister is and then honor you in that. So, Lord, teach us from your word this morning. We love you, and we pray for, for great things as your spirit moves here. Most of all, that you'd be glorified, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we can pick up where we left off last Sunday and begin with this first truth. Remember, four truths. Uh, the first one is, a, and, and this is really elementary level stuff. Um, it's just very simple and basic. But what I find in my own life is that I need to go back to the basics so often because I get dazzled by deeper truths and then kind of forget about the basic stuff. And so real simple stuff. Firstly, a Christian minister is a servant, a servant. What a thought, right? A servant. Verse 1a is where Paul says this. Remember, he's giving them a framework for what a minister is. He says this, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. Why would he have to say this? Because the Corinthians were taking all of these ministers, these Christian ministers, and exalting them way above what they're supposed to be. You, you know, you, you don't go around following servants, right? We're fellow servants. We serve alongside of pastors and ministers. And, and this is what he's saying. They've got a weird, twisted, exalted view. He really begins with an admonition. He's saying, I want you, church, to regard me, Apollos, Cephas, all the other apostles, all other Christian ministers, you are to regard us not as this exalted person that you're to be following, that's Jesus, regard us as servants of Christ. I mean, you can't get any plainer here. He is shooting straight. He just flat out tells him what you're doing isn't what you're supposed to be doing. We are servants. We are fellow servants. And I like the Greek word for servants here. It is huperetes. And it basically, it's a really, really interesting word, and it means under rower, an under rower. This is what he's saying. We are under rowers. What is an under rower? They were the lowest kind of slave, a galley slave whose job was at the very bottom of the boat pushing the oars. That's what he's calling himself. View us as under rowers, not just a regular servant. But he's giving them a picture, a, a, a mental picture of about the lowest kind of servant there is. That's what an under rower is. It's a galley slave who helps to propel the boat. And I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie Ben-Hur. You've seen that? Some of you are like, what is a Ben-Hur? Because you're like 28 and you really don't know much. <laughs> I lived Ben-Hur. I loved it. 
But you, 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 want, you want to get a mental image. If you remember that movie, there's the scene where Judah and all the other, all the under, uh, all the um, under rowers are down in the bottom of the boat, and there's a guy, um, I think it's called a coxswain, is the name of somebody who guides the rowers, and he's up there and he's giving these orders, and he gets an order to get the boat up to ramming speed because they're about to ram an enemy ship, and he calls for ramming speed, and then this drummer is drumming really fast, and everyone's just pulling with all their might. You remember that scene? It's amazing. And of course, the guys are walking around whipping people because they're not, you know, rowing hard enough, which would have been me. I would have been getting whipped to death because I'd be like, you know, I'm so tired. Do you have a Snickers or something? I mean, it would have just been bad. <laughs> but that's, that, that is a great scene in a movie that captures what under rowers are, galley slaves. It's such a, a, a powerful moment. Can you imagine having to row to ramming speed? What is that, like three miles an hour? I mean, it wasn't 35 knots. So... Under rowers, thinking here, what, what Paul, the picture Paul's trying to paint is that they were the most menial, unenvied, despised of slaves. In fact, what would happen is, if you would conquer a nation or a group of people or a military group, you would take their soldiers and make them galley slaves to propel your boats. So it's just a, a very, very low kind of position, about the lowest there is. In fact, I'd say it's probably slightly lower than foot-washing servants which were very low. And keep in mind that Jesus portrayed himself as such a servant when he washed his disciples' feet. This is what you're to be. This is how you're to serve each other. Very, very low kind of servant. In antiquity, okay, back then, no one in their right mind would ever exalt and follow a galley slave. Well, that guy rose really hard. I'm following him. Nobody thought like this. Right? The, the, the objective in life was to never become a galley slave. Nobody would have ever followed a galley slave. That would have been absurd. And what Paul is teaching the Corinthians is that exalting and following a Christian minister is no less absurd. The absurdity is the same. You're going to mount up and exalt this galley slave, the lowest kind of slave. You're going to raise this person up and follow them. That is totally absurd. His audience is saying nobody would do that in their right mind. And that's my point. You're doing that with us, and we are the same. Why are you doing this with us? This is what he's teaching them. Uh, he, he is essentially teaching them that it is absurd to do this with us just as it would be to do that with the galley slaves. The, the apostles, really, who he's referring to initially, because that's who these people were fascinated with, and then, of course, Apollos, who was a phenomenal teacher. Uh, and Paul is just saying, we are galley slaves for the Lord. That's what we are, meager, menial uh, uh, servants of Christ. That's all we are. In fact, a little later in chapter, same chapter, verse 13, he calls himself and every Christian minister the scum of the earth, the lowest of the possible low, the refuse of the earth is what he calls that particular group. Now, he is not making fun of Christian ministers. He's just trying to give these people who have a very jacked-up view, a baseline understanding of, of what Christian ministers are. They're just humble servants. We, we don't deserve what you're trying to do with us, is what he's saying. In uh, his second letter to the Corinthians, the apostle detailed just how humiliating and inglorious the life of a Christian minister can be. It's almost like in the second book, they were doing better. There was some repentance, but they still had corrupted views. So he writes another letter to them later on, and he's got to kind of reiterate some of this to them. And he kind of lays out what the life of a Christian minister 
is like, which should help to temper them, to help give them a better theology of not exalting these people to where they shouldn't be. He says Christian ministers can't expect afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, uh, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. 2 Corinthians 6, 4 to 5. Doesn't sound like a very glorious profession to me that deserves some kind of high exaltation. And I'm following Phil, I'm following Bruce, I'm following Dustin. That doesn't make any sense. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 28, Paul goes further and expands on this subject by recounting all of the wonderful things he encountered as a Christian minister. Imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Sign me up for that one. Once I was stoned. And he's talking about having rocks thrown at him, not what our culture thinks of being stoned is. Three times I was shipwrecked. That couldn't have been fun. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. How much fun would that be to be sailing out to sea and having no control over that? He says, I was on frequent journeys in, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, he says, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in the cold, and dealing with exposure. And then lastly, he says, and apart from all sorts of other things on top of all these terrible things, here's where he announces the worst part or the, the, the hardest thing he had to deal with as a Christian minister. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, for all the churches. The guy was so stressed out because of the churches that he had planted with the things they were engaging in, getting themselves tangled up in. Corinth is a prime example. Paul's point is that being a Christian minister is not glamorous. It is the furthest thing in the world for, from glamorous. It is only glamorous if the Christian minister doesn't do it right. That's when it's glamorous, when they don't do it right. I'll tell you, for years and years and years, especially when I was at Big Valley, I'd have these young men come to me and, you know, and it didn't happen very frequently like I'm the guy to go to here. I'm the pastoral guru but once in a while, a young man would come to me, and I'm not talking about junior high. I'm talking about like 21, 22, 23. Pastor Phil, I really want to become a pastor. And I would say, okay, that's very interesting, Jimmy, or whatever, I'm making up the name. So why do you want to be a pastor? Because I want to preach the word of God. That's what I want to do. And I said, and what are you going to do with the other 99% of your time? Do hospital visits, deal with all sorts of drama. There's all sorts of stuff, not to mention that once you get in the cycle of preaching, those sermons come every week and there's no escape. You have to write them no matter what you feel like. It is not, Jimmy, it is not a glorious thing. It is not. It is not what you think. All you see is me come forward and preach. That's all you see and that's all you know, and that's what you want to do. And first of all, I want to know why you want to do that, because that doesn't sound right to me. Why? Because you want a spotlight? I've actually had somebody tell me I want to be in the spotlight. It's like, this is a mentality, not in church circles, but it's a mentality in our culture. And I, I, I honestly, this is going to be weird. If you come to me for premarital counseling, I'll do everything I can to dislodge you so you don't get married. I'm going to make it hard on you because marriage is hard. 
You come to me with pastoral aspirations, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to come at you hard. I'm going to try to help you understand all of the things that no one anticipates, all of the difficulty, your own church coming after you at times. There are things that no one anticipates. They see this, and don't get me wrong, this is a wonderful blessing and, and privilege that ministers don't deserve. They get to come up and do this. I get that. I love it. I cherish it, but it's not the only thing we do. And so much of the work is not glorious. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. One of the things that a pastor has to deal with are family dynamics, marital dynamics. Do you know what the most dangerous call is for a law enforcement officer? A domestic call. They are the most dangerous calls. Why would it be any less, um, less uh, terrifyingly difficult or dangerous for a pastor who's now being called to intervene in a marriage? I have intervened in people's marriages, and I have been striped for it when I was called by them. This is something that Jimmy is not anticipating. He has a wrong view of what the Christian minister is, and it's my job to help him understand what it is. And if he still thinks the Lord's calling him to it, praise the Lord, I'll get 110% behind him. If he runs, I'll run alongside of him and then go back to my job. It is not a glorious thing. It is not glamorous. It is warfare. It is warfare. It is spiritual warfare. The first line of defense is in my own life. And then you find yourself combating and fighting against the forces of darkness in the lives of others and in your church. It is absolute war. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. It is only those fake Christian ministers in big Eva, big evangelicalism, who create a false persona of what it's actually like to be a Christian minister. You know, those money-grubbing prosperity pimps who deliberately shrink back from declaring the full counsel of God's word because they know if they do that, they're going to ruffle feathers and probably lose some, some, some rear ends in the, in the pews. That's what happens if you preach the whole counsel. Sometimes when you preach the whole counsel of God, nobody in the congregation is happy. Praise the Lord. Because that's probably a day of reckoning for them where they need to realize some things about their life. It is a mercy and it is a grace for God to discipline his people. It is not a beautiful thing. It is not a wondrous thing. It is not a glorious thing. And it is those false ministers, T.D. Jakes, Osteen, those types of characters, charlatans, who have painted it into, into this glorious, wonderful thing where you get a jet and all this other great stuff. Men like this are not Christian ministers. They are not servants of Christ. They are servants of Satan. They are servants of self. The Corinthians were being influenced by similar dregs, the super apostles and the Greek philosophers. It's amazing to think that what we see going on today was happening in the first century. It was just a different, it just wasn't televised. They didn't have, they didn't have internet. Thank God they didn't have it back then. Could you, we'd be, the civilization would be gone by now. TikTok in the first century, you don't make it to the second century. It was, it, was the, it was these low-life, just belligerent false teachers that have created this persona. Fact of the matter is self-exaltation, pardon me, self-exaltation was the chief end of those who peddled their pagan ideas in churches and at the Acropolis in the first century. It's all about self-exaltation. 
Those men who went around and pretended to be apostles or those men who went around as Greek philosophers, they wanted followers and they wanted glory. And the more followers a man had, the more glory and recognition, the more pomp and circumstance he received. Paul is essentially saying under this first point, you cannot do that with us. What are you doing? You cannot do that with us. We are galley slaves. No one exalts and follows galley slaves. Exalt and follow the divine master and commander of the church, the Lord Jesus. That's the one that you follow, the master and commander. He is the captain of the ship called the church. You don't follow us that are down rowing for his glory. You follow the one who has all glory. You get down here and row alongside of us. That's your job, maybe. What are you doing? So that's his first point. Again, what is a Christian minister? First and foremost, always he is a servant. That is the first truth. Let's move to the second. Number two, very like the first, a little different. A Christian minister is a steward. We see this in 1B. He says, and you're to regard us as, as servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul admonishes the Corinthians to regard him and the other ministers as stewards. The Greek word for steward is oikonomos, which means managers. Managers is a, good, is a good rendering, another English rendering. You might say that in some translations. When we see the word steward in, particularly in the New Testament, think of a person who manages something, who manages something. In fact, the words stewardship and management are basically synonymous in this text. They mean the same thing. He is saying we are stewards, we are managers of something in particular here. I think the difference would be in the object that is being managed. A manager, you know, can manage all sorts of things, especially things that belong to himself his bank account, his household, his business, etc. But a steward typically manages things that have been entrusted to him. He manages something for someone else. And that's kind of the difference. If there's a difference at all between steward and management or manager, that's it in the text here. I like what MacArthur wrote. He said, the steward supervised the property, the fields and vineyards, the finances, the food and, and other servants on behalf of his master. That is a, a great commentary on what it means to be a steward. And as I said, if there is a difference between the two, manager, managers manage all sorts of things. A steward manages things for his master, in particular here, the Lord. That would be the difference. Paul is saying Christian ministers are stewards of something that has been entrusted to them. It's essentially on loan and it's for them to manage. And what he's ultimately saying here is that stewards are not owners. If the steward is not an owner, should the steward receive all that exaltation and following? Right? Remember, Scripture is insanely logical. Paul is using logic. You don't follow galley slaves. That makes no sense. You don't exalt a steward because he's managing something that belongs to someone else. You exalt the, you exalt the owner. This is what he's teaching them here. This is very simple, but just brilliant. Christian ministers are stewards. Christian ministers are not owners. They are stewards of something that does not belong to them. Again, in antiquity, no one in their right mind would have ever exalted and followed a steward. That would be absurd, just as 
exalting and following a Christian minister would be no less absurd. That's his point. Now we have to ask the question, what has been entrusted to Christian ministers who are stewards? What are they called to steward? Paul says very plainly, the mysteries of God. What on earth does this mean? What is it? In fact, Paul uses the word, Greek word, mysterion, uh, 21 times in his epistles. So he, he likes this Greek word, mysterion. He likes to use the word mystery. In Ephesians 3, 5, he defined a mystery as something that had not been made known to people in other generations, as it has been made known and, and revealed now by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So there's a baseline definition of what a mystery is. Christian ministers are therefore stewards of divine mysteries, things that, things that God has, has not revealed to past generations, but had only given past generations small glimpses of. In theology, we call these glimpses types and shadows. How many of you have heard that phrase, types and shadows? That's a glimpse of a truth, but it's only a glimpse. Maybe it's a glimpse of something prophetic that's coming, but it's only a glimpse. It doesn't give you the full picture. It gives you a partial image. That's uh, what was revealed to the saints of old. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are many, many examples of types and shadows. But in the New Testament, these prophetic truths have been brought into full view through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. We see an example of this, and it's a very simple example of this, like types and shadows and then being brought into a more full revelation. We see that concerning marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 and in Ephesians 5. According to Genesis 1 and 2, that's the full chapters there, the purpose of marriage is to become one flesh, to be fruitful, to multiply, uh, to exercise dominion on earth as God's image bearers or imagers or even ambassadors. That's it, according to Genesis 1 and 2. That's the purpose of marriage, according to the Old Testament. Now, does that get elaborated on a little bit more in other scripture? Yeah, especially in Song of Songs, it gets really elaborated on on the intimacy in marriage, but I think that's more of a metaphor for something else. But that is an Old Testament understanding of what marriage is. And uh, there is a profound mystery that has always been associated with marriage that was not revealed in Genesis 1 and 2 or in, anywhere in the Old Testament. It is revealed. That's the types and shadows. The revelation, the fuller revelation, uh, and the dealing with the profound mystery of marriage that was hidden from the saints of old is now revealed in the New Testament. We see it in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. That a marriage between a man and woman is the other things that are defined in Genesis 1 and 2, but that the marriage between one man and one woman, it actually represents the relationship between Christ and his church. That is not something that was understood in the Old Testament, especially in the earliest, por the earliest part of human history. So you have marriage, and it's good marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Old Testament, but you have a fuller, broader revelation of what it is in the New Testament. That is what I'm talking about, where types and shadows are made lucidly clear in the New Testament. In fact, there's a, like I said, there's a lot of types and shadow prophecies and things in the Old Testament that Old Testament saints only had a glimpse of that have been brought into full light in the New Testament. This is essentially what Paul is talking about here. 
The fuller meaning of marriage we don't understand until we get to Ephesians 5. You have a limited understanding of what it is in the Old Testament. You don't get the full sense of what it is until you get into the New Testament. That is the fuller meaning, that it represents Christ and his church, right? I mean, think about it. You've got a husband. You have a human husband. You have a divine husband. You have a human wife, the church. You have a, uh, well, you have a, you have a human wife, a wife, a gal. You have a human bride for Christ in a sense, really a divine bride if you want to think about it, and that's the church. You see the parallels? You don't understand. You never come to this conclusion from the Old Testament on your own. You can't. You have to have the New Testament to have the full picture here. Um, another term we use for this isn't just types and shadows, but it would be called progressive revelation. And I don't really like using the word progressive today because it has a lot of negative connotation. But what it simply means is that something was revealed and that it's revealed in a clearer sense over time, progressively, until the full picture of it is clear. And that's what we see with Genesis 1 and 2 and Ephesians 5. This is interesting stuff. The mysteries Paul referred to in our text were only types and shadows in the Old Testament, but have been fully revealed in the New Testament through the Spirit. This is what he's teaching these people. In fact, Jesus himself spoke of mysteries in, Mark's, in Mark chapter 4, verse 11. He told the disciples they had been given a mystery, a mysterion. What was it? It was a mystery that had to deal with the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, just stop and think, because logically, if we think about this logically, that means that the kingdom of God was a mystery in the Old Testament, and people couldn't fully grasp it. Am I telling the truth? Yes! It was a type and shadow in the Old Testament. Old Testament saints didn't have a fuller sense of what the kingdom of God is. They had a they had a glimpse of what it would be. They longed for it. In fact, Abraham longed for it, but he didn't really fully comprehend it because you don't get to the full revelation of what the kingdom of God is until you get to the New Testament, until you get to the coming of Jesus. So we don't want to say that the kingdom of God is not present in the Old Testament. It is, but it is present only in types and shadows. For example, I just gave the example, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, that has its foundations, and the designer of that city and the builder of that city is God himself. Hebrews 11.10, this is revealed. What was Abraham looking forward to? What is this city that has its foundations and, and its designer and builder is God himself? What is it? This is a reference to the kingdom of God. This is a reference to the kingdom of God. Now, just stop and think about the fact that God is the designer and builder of this city. If God is invisible and he builds a city with his own hands, not through human means, that means the city is invisible. It is not a physical city that you can visibly look upon. It is built by God himself, who is spirit, which means the city that he is building or has built that Abraham was looking forward to is, in fact, invisible and spiritual. But I would say this as a total encouragement to us. In the future, this city that God is building, it will be made visible in the new heavens, the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse 1 and verse 10. And keep in mind this. This is also, this is mysterious. Old Testament Satan didn't understand. Abraham, I think he was looking forward to an invisible city, maybe, but he only had a glimpse of it. But 
Here's something that Abraham didn't understand or any Old Testament saint. They didn't understand that the kingdom of God would be built here. This is not something they understood. In fact, we're not even convinced as theologians and as Christians that Old Testament saints were fully possessed at all times by the Spirit. You would see God put the Spirit on one man and take it off of him. He'd put it on him for battle and take it off of him. Maybe they were fully possessed. Maybe they were regenerated like we are. I don't know. Why did David say after he got caught up in sin, let not your spirit be taken from me? If he had the spirit forever, the spirit would never be taken. So what Old Testament saints totally did not understand was the idea of an invisible kingdom being manifest in the hearts of God's people, that God would literally put his kingdom in us. Why else are we called temples? Why are we called temples? This is a mystery that was not understood. This is a mystery that Jesus is telling his disciples, you have been given this. It is being revealed to you now, to no one else, not even John the Baptist, who was right in between, to you. What a privilege these men had to be given this truth here, and what a privilege we are to have it now. That is the mystery, part of the mystery that, that Paul is referring to here. Uh, let's see. The kingdom of God is in believers. And think of this, if the kingdom of God is invisible and it's in us, I want you to understand something. Wherever Christ is, his kingdom is. What did he say in Mark 1, 14, I believe? Repent. Believe the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is saying in that text, I'm your king and I am bringing the kingdom right now. Repent and believe what I tell you. So wherever Christ is, his kingdom is. And if he is in us through the Holy Spirit, his kingdom is likewise in us. That is a truth that was mysterious in the Old Testament, not fully understood totally revealed to us. It is our reality. Christ is seated on the throne of our hearts, ruling and reigning over his people from within and from above at the right hand of the Father. Galatians 4, 6, 1 Timothy 6, 15, Matthew 28, 18, Mark 16, 19. I could just rattle it off like an auctioneer. It's all over the place. As I said, Abraham did not understand these deeper, mysterious truths concerning the kingdom of God. And, uh, and, and because, why? Because he and every other Old Testament saint, they just had types and shadows to go by. They didn't have all this pure, clear, full revelation. But then the Spirit revealed these mysteries to the apostles, and they wrote them down in the New Testament. What was hidden to Abraham has been revealed to us right here in the Word through the Spirit. What a grace now, when Paul wrote mysteries of God in verse 1b, what was he referring to? Was he referring to the kingdom of God that I've just talked about? Absolutely. But he was also referring to other mysteries that were hidden from Old Testament saints, like the mystery of God's will and divine purposes, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. Something fully revealed to us, something only partially understood in the Old Testament. As well as the mystery of, and here's the big one, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Colossians 1, 27. 
not fully comprehended in the Old Testament, fully realized in the New Testament. What a blessing to us. <clears throat> Another one here, because there's all sorts of mysteries. Remember, you, Paul used the word a lot because he described a lot of mysteries that were being revealed now. You have the mystery of godliness. Does that mean that the Old Testament saints didn't know how to be godly? No, they had the law. Believe me, they knew. Uh, he's talking about this in the mysteries of godliness, that, that Christ was what? Manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. 1 Timothy 3.16. That is the mystery of the entire gospel right there, front to back. Not fully comprehended in the Old Testament. Trusting in a Savior to come, but not knowing a lot about Him. If, they would, if the Jews had stuck to Isaiah 53, they'd known a lot about Him, but they rejected that text because they reject Jesus. Paul is saying the Christian minister is a steward of all these mysteries. Since the mysteries are revealed and recorded in Scripture, that means it is the responsibility and task of the minister to steward all of Scripture. He's not just a steward of those mysterious passages that are now brought into light. He's a steward of the whole word because these mysteries are threaded throughout Scripture as well as all truth. That's what the Christian stewards, the Word of God, 66 books, not 77, 66 canonized books making up the Old and the New Testaments. That's what he is a steward of. It's imperative that we understand this. We are, Christian ministers are stewards of the mysteries of God as revealed in the full counsel of God, the whole Bible, all 66 books. How does the Christian minister steward Scripture? Right? Is that not a legitimate question? All right, great. They're stewards of this whole Bible. What exactly does that look like? What does that look like for, for a congregation that is charged with holding their Christian ministers accountable? Right? What does that mean for an aspiring young man who wants to potentially go into Christian ministry? What does that mean? What does that mean for some of us old goats? What is it? How does he do it? He does it by hiding the word in his heart. Psalm 119.11. I say that's probably the first step. He does it by letting the word of God dwell in him richly. Colossians 3.16. You probably thought I was just going to ramble off all these things he has to do in teaching. Oh, he has a first responsibility to be an inner steward. He does it by keeping the word as a what unto his feet, as a what unto his path, a lamp and a light, Psalm 119, verse 105. By the way, Psalm 119 is absolutely amazing, and it's very long. He does it by obeying the word. What did Jesus say? If you love me, a Christian minister ought to love Jesus like crazy. He's serving the Lord. He's a steward for the mysteries. John 14, 15, the Christian minister stewards the word by keeping the word at the center of his life and ministry. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. 18, tie it around your neck, put it on your forehead, keep it in front of you, keep it at the front and center of your life firstly and your ministry secondly. Always life first because that's where the trouble lies, where the minister makes it just about his ministry and doesn't have a life that reflects the word of God. And that is the big challenge. Ministers do not want to be like auto mechanics. 
Everyone else's cars run great, but theirs is a 1974 Ford Pinto running on three cylinders. That's bad for a Christian minister. Bad. Some of you are like, what is a Ford Pinto? Look it up and you will know how embarrassed I was when my mom dropped me off at high school. Because that's what we rolled up in and it was root beer brown. I was like, drop me off two blocks before. If my friends see me in this, I'm done. And then I had Kmart shoes and it just didn't matter. So it's just like, hey, nice car and great shoes. Those don't say Reebok. Remember how it was in the 80s, how competitive it was? This is a rabbit hole I've gone off into. Christian ministers don't care about Kmart shoes or rolling up in a root beer pinto. They keep the word at the center. Here's a, here's a big one here. The Christian minister, stewards, all scripture, the word of God, the Bible, 66 books, by not being ashamed of the word. 2 Timothy 1.8. He also does it by defending the word. Now, I would say you defend it in love, but it must be defended at times. Why else would you give a reason for the hope? Peter is talking about defending the word right there. 2 Peter 3.15. He also does it by preaching and teaching the word in season. And what? Out of season. 2 Timothy 3.16-17. Does that mean that the Christian minister preaches in season, which is summer, and then he takes the fall off? No, it means preach it when it's popular and preach it when it's hated. That's what he is to do. Preach it in season when people like it and preach it even more when they hate it. But do it in love. That's hard for me. Also, lastly, how does the Christian minister steward the word? By declaring the word in its entirety, by not shrinking back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, 27. What does that mean? Don't wimp out when you get to Romans 7, 8, 9 and start talking about weird election. Preach election. Don't wimp out when you get to the text on homosexuality. Preach it in love. Call homosexuals to repentance. Don't wimp out when it talks about keeping women silence in church. I'm just kidding. I, that's a, that's, that can get you in a lot of hot water. No, <laughs> preach that too, but do it right. Understand the context, right? Don't shrink back when you start talking about head coverings. It's her hair. Preach it all. There's things that you're going to preach in the Word that are going to tick people off. They're going to get spun out because they have their traditions and these sorts of things. But you know what the Bible's great at? Annihilating tradition. Just destroying it. This is what got Jesus in hot water. Not just his proclamations that he is in fact the Son of God and, and truly God in the flesh, but that he went against all of the Pharisees' traditions. He didn't wash his hands before they ate. Oh, somebody's going to hell. I mean, he just used the scripture to annihilate their traditions. And the scripture does that. And sometimes you'll find yourself at odds with what you're hearing because you're clinging to a tradition, not the word. Preach it all. Whether they like it, whether they don't, who cares? We always have an audience of one, really of three, the Godhead. That's the most important audience I preached before. Amen. These are the ways that the Christian minister can steward the word. Again, quick reflection. What is a Christian minister? He is a steward of the mysteries of God, the whole Bible. That's the second truth. Let's move to the third. A Christian minister is steadfast. Verse 2. Paul says it like this. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Uh, this statement is more of a requirement than some kind of truth about a minister. It's something that the minister should be. 
Uh, the Greek word for faithful is pistos. It's a really neat word. I always thought, well, we get the word pistol from it. No, we don't. It's pistos. And it, it basically means reliable, to be reliable. And a synonym for reliable would be steadfast. So that's how I came up with the S, because I had to keep the S's. Paul is telling the Corinthians that a Christian minister is required to be steadfast in his commitment to the mysteries of God, a.k.a. what are the mysteries of God? All Scripture. This is what he's saying. And I would say that steadfastness is probably the most important quality for a steward. Doesn't that make sense that a steward be faithful? If you're a steward and you're not faithful, you're not much of a steward, right? And if you're charged with stewarding the Word of God and you're not very faithful to the Word of God, then you're a cruddy steward, right? This is what he's saying here. How can something valuable, and is the Word of God not valuable? How can something valuable be entrusted to a man who wavers in his devotion and behaves unfaithfully? How can you entrust, would you entrust something valuable to you to somebody who's a total flake? You would never do that. And isn't the Word of God by far our most valuable possession? I mean, aside from our salvation, but we have no idea what our salvation is without the Word of God. The Word of God, this Bible, it's, it makes me so sad that so many Christians have so much dust on it, they never read it. This is the most valuable thing we possess. And I possess a whole bunch of them. I got tons of them. I buy them just to have them. But I teach in the ESV. Amen? Switch to the NASB. Well, the NASB's good. The King James is good. I just have a hard time with the thousand and all that. The Bible is our most, most valuable possession by far. It is a treasure. It is a treasure. When are we going to start treating it as such? Seriously, it is a treasure. It is our most valuable possession. Why? Because it contains the wisdom of God, which the Bible says over and over and over and over is more precious than silver, more precious than choice silver, more precious than gold, more precious than fine gold or the gold of Ophir, more precious than jewels and rubies. Proverbs 3.13 to 15 um, and Proverbs 8.11, that gives the Bible value because it contains the wisdom of God, which is worth more than anything on earth. Um, it is valuable to us and most valuable, our best and greatest possession, because it is God-breathed. What does that mean? It is God speaking to us. That's what it means, 2 Tim 3.15. As you can see, just based on those two ideas or truths, Scripture is absolutely priceless. What am I getting to? If Scripture is priceless, then the handling of it must be very, very important. Amen? That is the, the part of my job. This is the part I tell Jimmy, run! Run for your life. You're going to be handling the most valuable commodity and resource ever known to man. All the coal in the world can't come to the value of this. All the diamonds, everything, all the opals, it doesn't matter. You are going to be handling the Word of God. That's what you do when you step into the spotlight. That should terrify you. You shouldn't be running toward that. A man of God that's actually called, I think they're running away from it. And the hound of heaven is chasing them down, as, as Lewis would say, right? This is not, this is, this is a little bit terrifying for us guys. It should be at least. It should be. 
The Bible is our most valuable, most valuable uh, commodity, most valuable possession because it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16b and 17. The Bible is insanely valuable, our highest possession, because it contains the gospel, which does what? Makes us wise unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15, you don't know what the gospel is without that Bible. You know it's a word, but you don't see it on the pages. You don't see the life and death and, and burial and resurrection of Jesus without the book. It is so valuable. It is priceless. Now we know why it is so important in how we handle it. And the Christian minister is to be a steadfast steward of the word. If he isn't steadfast in his commitment to scripture, he will not only mishandle scripture, but he might even use it for his own ends. He might. I'm reminded of Gary Oldman's character, Carnegie, in the book of Eli. That was a really interesting movie. He wanted to get that Bible, seemingly the only Bible on earth, and he didn't understand that Denzel Washington was the Bible. It wasn't the book he was carrying, but he saw the book, and he wanted to get the book from Eli, Denzel Washington, really, really bad. Why? So that he could maintain his power over a, uh, a post-apocalyptic town. He reckoned that if that Bible gets into the hands of the citizens of this crummy little town, they'll be set free and they will not submit to my authority any longer. He was terrified of the Bible getting into the hands of common folks, just as the Roman Catholic Church was in the 1500s. And tragically, there are Carnegies in churches today who use the word to either bind the ignorant, bludgeon the faithful, or maybe to build their own little man-centered kingdoms like Lakewood Church in Houston. A man must prove himself. He must prove to be steadfast with the word before he can even be thought of as being appointed to being a Christian minister. He's got to prove himself in advance. This is why our, our eldership process takes a little bit of time. And not only does he have to prove it to be qualified to enter into it, he's got to continue to prove himself Afterwards, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, if he's Methuselah. A Christian minister, now listen to me. This is huge, and this is something that I want you to always hold me accountable on and the other elders. A Christian minister who wavers in his commitment to Scripture will have a church that wavers in its commitment to Scripture. Like priest like people. Hosea 4, 9. You watch me. You listen to me every weekend. Hopefully you hear the Spirit, not me. But you watch me carefully and you listen to me carefully and you do that with the other elders. And what we say matters because you're listening and watching and what we do matters. And if, if one of us is corrupted, if one of us doesn't have the right kind of commitment to Scripture, it's your job to lovingly call us out. And through email, so it goes to my junk folder. No, I'm just kidding. You need to come right to me and say it in love because my first thing is defense because I'm a putz. Seriously, this is serious stuff. It is serious, serious stuff. My commitment to Scripture, I am called to commit to it. I am called to be a good steward of it. I need to be. It's my vocation. 
but it's your job to make sure that I stay that way. It's the job of the other elders to stay that way. And quite frankly, it is our job as elders to make sure the church stays that way and that we're not doing anything to cause a lack of commitment to the word. Amen? This is a huge responsibility for us. The Christian ministers who ministered in Corinth proved to be incredibly steadfast in the word. They did. They did. Those men preached and taught the word vigorously, boldly, loudly, especially Apollos. And I think this was an attractive feature of that church, and rightly so. Christians should long for and desire for and value good, steadfast preaching. They should be able to recognize it and, and, and be thankful to God for it. And they should throw their support behind any Christian minister who proves to be steadfast in God's Word. But there are limits. There are limits on far, how far you go with that. That man, that preacher that you enjoy that you think is, is a godly man and he does a good job, he is a man. He is a first. What did we learn? Servant. He is a steward. Remember this. Servant. Steward. Not someone who you put on a pedestal. Not someone who you exalt above other elders. Not someone who you boast about in your community. That's what the Corinthians were doing. He is still a servant and a steward. And I'll tell you what, he deserves his wage, but God alone deserves the exaltation and glory. Christ alone deserves to be followed. Amen? So what is a Christian minister to be? Moving right along, steadfast in his commitment to the mysteries of God, to all scripture. That's the third truth. Let's go to the fourth and last one. We start wrapping up. This is the longer one, but it's really simple to walk through. Number four, a Christian minister is not to be judged, not to be measured, not to be evaluated by using worldly standards. Verses three to five, the rest of the text here. Paul says this, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation, not condemnation, it's commendation from God. That's the end of the text for this morning. Paul is admonishing the Corinthians for misjudging himself and for misjudging the other Christian ministers, apostles, Apollos, and anyone who comes after them, anyone in their line, including me. What were they doing? Comparing Paul, judging. When you make a comparison, you're essentially issuing a judgment. They were comparing Paul and the others to the super apostles who were now touring around, and they were fake apostles, as well as comparing them to the local philosophers, right? They were using those Greek communication standards to measure to evaluate, to judge their Christian ministers. It wasn't too long ago when somebody told me, you know what we ought to do, Pastor Phil? And he wasn't from this church, thank God, because I would have lost it. But he said, we need to start shifting our sermons toward TED Talks. You know, those little 15-minute talks that are actually really good and helpful in some areas, but that's the kind of sermon mode or model that we need to use. And I'm like, why are you using the world standards for us? 
Hmm? Right? You're lucky you don't go to RHC, because I would I, I wouldn't do that. I would do it verbally. Seriously, why, why are you trying to use the world? Why are you trying to figure out what we're supposed to do in the church by looking at the world? That is the worst place to look. It is the worst place to look. It is. Okay, so this is what the Corinthians were doing with their Christian ministers, using those standards. What were those standards that they were using to judge their own Christian ministers? Style, skill, and success. Three S's, right? We've said this over and over. If a Christian minister was stylistically pleasing and skillful in his craft like one of the local Greek philosophers, the Corinthians worked to make him successful. How? By bragging about him, by saying that's the guy we're following, by making little cliques and groups underneath them. This is what they did. We need to get this guy out there, man. We need to get him a podcast, right? Move over, Joe Rogan. This is what they were doing. In antiquity, the success of a local philosopher was determined not by the profundity of his message, but by his popularity. If he had lots of disciples, he was deemed successful. I remember somebody years ago told me, man, if you get a lot of people into your church, that shows success. And I'm like, if you get a lot of people into a corn concert, does that mean success? Well, I don't know. Right? They were they were judging their Christian ministers, the Corinthians were, in, in some ways like today's social media influencers, right? Some of the most talentless people known to man have become superstars overnight on TikTok. Take, for instance, the Island Boys. You heard of these guys? Oh, Lord. Have you seen these shimps? They did one terrible song in a jacuzzi. By the way, they had their clothes on, so if you research it. They did this ridiculously terrible song. They cannot sing, and they did this, and the entire world went absolutely crazy for these two guys. I'm looking at these two guys going, these are the guys we chased at high school in the, park, in the, in the playground, in Pullman, Pummel, do you know what I mean? And they now have millions of followers and tens of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. And I think they'll be broke in six months because money easily earned is money easily lost, right? There's no real, it's like the crypto market. I'm in there, I'm, I'm ashamed to say it. <laughs> Point being, similar standards were being used to judge Paul and the other Christian ministers. By all rights, people would say, look at the, look at, look at the island boys. They are so incredibly popular. I mean, they are so successful. They're not talented. They're successful because they have a lot of followers, a lot of people who are into cheap entertainment. And maybe you like them. I'm sorry, but come on, man. Britney Spears is better than them, and she's a disaster. <laughs> these, these are the standards that were being used to judge these Christian ministers. Heaven forbid you would ever use them to judge me. I, I, it's never going to work because I'm just not popular, right? God keeps me deliberately not popular. I'm not going to be island Phil. Island Phil, study the Bible. You know, it's not going to work. I'm not getting anywhere on TikTok. And, and Paul is, is telling them that, you know, it, it, listen to what Paul tells them. He knows he's being judged by them. He knows he's being judged by them in this way. I know you're measuring me according to those guys at the Acropolis. But he says, it's a very small thing that I be judged by you. What is he saying? Your judgment of me has no weight. Why? Because you use the worldly standards to judge me. If you're using scriptural standards, it might have some weight. 
This is what he says in verse 3. We cannot use the world's standards to judge a Christian minister. We're not supposed to evaluate him based on his style, skill, or success. He must be assessed via God's standards, which are listed right there in verses 1 and 2. Does he live and carry himself as a servant of Christ? If he does, that's a good sign. Does he steward the mysteries of God well, the scripture? If he does, that's a great sign. Does he prove to be steadfast in the things of God, in faith, in duty, and most of all, in the handling of God's word? If he does, that's a good sign. Folks, what I'm telling you and what Paul is telling you, what the Spirit is telling you is those things represent our litmus test. Not style, not skill, not success. But is he a servant and a faithful one? Is he a steward of the word? That's what matters. Is he steadfast? Does he show up week after week and preach the word unflinchingly? Does he hold to the whole counsel of God? Is he worried about stripes? That he'll get stripes on his back for preaching certain things. Therefore, he does spiritual gymnastics with the text. That's what matters. That's what matters. These things represent our litmus test, our measuring rod. Verses 4 to 5a, Paul tells the Corinthians that he's not aware of anything in his life that they could actually judge. And he warns them about judging others, you know, doing that at all. That's just not wise at all. He tells them that Christ is the judge who will come to what? Bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. You guys are judging me based on these guys at the Acropolis. You're not even supposed to be judging me at all. And now you're using worldly standards to judge me? You guys are sinning, man. This is what he's saying. And then lastly, in verse 5b, Paul uh, repeats what he said back in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15 concerning the day. Remember the day or the judgment day of Christ talking about the judgment day of Christ when he returns and our rewards. That's what he's referring to once again, but this time he abbreviates it and he applies it to Christian ministers, not just the church as a whole. The meaning is very simple, what he's saying here. The Christian minister who faithfully serves, stewards, and is steadfast will receive his commendation from God. In other words, this is Paul's way of saying the only judgment, praise, and rewards that matter are from God, not from you. So why don't you stop judging and praising and trying to exalt and reward us? We are meager galley slaves, servants of Christ. We are meager, humble stewards of the mysteries of God of Scripture. And we are and have proven to be and will continue to be by the grace of God and by the power of God and the Holy Spirit steadfast in our devotion to the whole counsel of God. So what should we never, ever, ever do? We should never judge a Christian minister by worldly standards. We are to look at his service, his stewardship, and his steadfastness, not at his style, not at his skill, not at his success like the Corinthians were doing. Am I going to tell you that, that style, skill, and success aren't some kind of feature that should be there? It's tough to listen to someone who almost makes the Word of God seem dead. Personality and in communication, these things are all relevant and important, but heaven forbid that that should be the end of our assessment right? 
I came out of a church that's really a great church in, in many regards, but they put an enormous emphasis on communication skill at the expense of content. Never do that. Skill should be good. Get the man training. But his content really matters. And you should never sacrifice content for style or something like that. Give an even amount. Give more to the content and less to the others. Amen? If a... And that's essentially what the Corinthians were doing, judging according to the wrong standards. If a Christian minister meets these actual criteria, right, the, he's a servant, he's a steward, he's, he's steadfast. If he meets those things, those qualifications, along with a few others in 1 Tim 3, 1 to 13, Titus 1, 5 to 9, then you know he is a true minister and that we should support him. We should get behind him. We don't put him on a pedestal and worship him like these goofballs were doing, but we should support him. And if he doesn't meet this criteria, he is nothing short of an imposter and should be removed by those churches. But of course, that's not what they do. They get more money, fancier cars, more motorcycles, more submariners, whatever it is. It's ridiculous. Let's summarize. According to 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, the four truths about Christian ministers are very simple. A Christian minister is a servant. He is a steward. He is to be steadfast. And he is not, under any circumstances, to be judged by worldly standards. If we do that, we've deviated from the Word. My final exhortation for all of us is that we would follow God's standards when it comes to assessing Christian ministers. And may we leave all judgment to Christ. He is the appointed, exalted, sovereign judge who will return in glory and in terror to judge the living and the dead. Acts 10.42.